Welcome to Nobody Told Me That, your source for candid business talk and stories. Your host is speaker and author Teresa Duncan. Sit back, buckle up, and hang on. Welcome back, everybody. This is Teresa Duncan, and you heard that it's Nobody Told Me That, and it's time for another episode. I am super excited because, you know, my constant uh, co-host, Kevin, he is not here with us today, but I brought in another guest who I think has so much to share with us, and it is Andrea Greer. And Andrea, are you there? You want to say hi? I am. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Well, let me just tell them a little bit about you, and then we're going to dive right in because you have so much knowledge to share. And that's what I want to get to. So Andrea's been in, in dentistry for over 25 years. So she's another one of the veterans. You know, we don't, we don't call ourselves the old girls. We call ourselves the veterans, right? She's led many, she's led practices from a bunch of different positions. She's been an assistant, a hygienist, a manager, a dentrix trainer, practice management consultant, and she is a speaker. So those last two, she currently still is. And what she does is she she goes at it um, just just from talking with her and knowing her. She goes at it with workflows. She goes at it with protocols. And she's very she's a very big believer in patient communication. And, you know, in this in what we're dealing with today, she she knows it's a challenge to navigate those murky waters of dental insurance and and still be able to lead a good life in the practice. So she's very, very passionate about helping dentists and their teams believe in what they are providing to the patient family and realize contentment and purpose. And I love that the whole realizing contentment and purpose. I don't think I don't think that happens enough mm-hmm. today. And mm-hmm. and she has spoken at the CDA in San Francisco, which is a great show. Lots of Henry Shine Fall Festival events and and tons of private CE events. And and I'm just so thrilled that you're here because we we have a lot to dive we into. Do. We do. Well and I, I had run into you well I run into you on the road mm-hmm. every now and then, but we got a chance to talk at, at ADMC and it was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ADMC uh, cocktail party, that was a lot of fun, uh, right? Like beautiful good up food. at the top of the hotel there. Yeah, yeah. And you don't think that Atlanta has like a great view. Oh, you know, <laughs> you don't think of Atlanta. <laughs> but it was good. I thought it, it was, was good. Let's just jump into it. Um, tell me real quick. I know we went through the dental assistant, hygienist, hygienist office manager. And I love that you're you're a hygienist because I think when hygienists go into consulting and managing, they bring such a great viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that evolution. From hygienist to office manager, boy, I will tell you, it was almost on accident because when I started working as a hygienist in the late 90s, ugh, I'm so old, I feel like, when I started <laughs> working as a hygienist, I had absolutely no interest in the business area. I did not want to do insurance. I didn't want to talk finances. I didn't want to work the computer. I didn't want to do any of that. And over the time that I worked in this one particular office for about 10 and a half years, I ultimately became the go-to person for the for Dentrix when we installed Dentrix and, and learned it. I loved the program and got into that. And it led me, because of that, it led me into 
doing a lot more of the management stuff and making some of those phone calls and managing the retention systems and managing some of the even AR systems. You know, at the time we had a, a business person at the front who, you know, she um, she was great. She was wonderful, um, but she wasn't super involved in a lot of those types of things. And so I kind of took it upon myself to learn it. And then ultimately I went to work for my stepmom, who is also a dentist, she had a practice in Colorado, which is where I lived at the time. And she had been after me. She was recruiting me for about a year to come and work for her as an office manager. And I finally said, okay, yes, I'll do that. And so, and I did do that. And I really, I just loved it. And um, I still practiced a little bit of hygiene from there, but then went into doing some, you know, just support of offices uh, in workflows and some of their verbal skills and that kind of thing. Even before I officially became a consultant, I started doing it that way with my stepmom and uh, in her practice. And it was a, you know, it was a really heavy PPO practice. And so I learned a lot of things that didn't work and things that did work and have been able to integrate that into some of my um, um, coaching experience as well, working with teams all over and helping them with those workflows and communication skills and understanding how important those communication skills are. So that's how I transitioned from hygiene to office management. And then kind of from there, it just, it blossomed. So I was very fortunate. You said something pretty funny though. <laughs> I'm fun, funny, sometimes the same thing. Went to work for your stepmom and that is always, that comes up in a lot of classes, not necessarily the mom, stepmom part, but working with family members. Sure. How, how, how was that? I mean, what did you learn from that? It was, it was a challenge for sure um, for both of us because, you know, you have history and I think no matter what it is, you have history. And of course I had to work really hard to walk that balance of helping her and being her advocate with her employees and also making sure that the employees felt like they were being treated fairly from me and being approached fairly because you know, they, I think everybody's go-to is that you're going to do things unfairly biased against or toward, I should say, biased toward your family member. And so it was a difficult, that was really tough. And I, I think it's very hard when any family member works in a practice, because I think that sometimes unintentionally things can get, can lead to bias and, and that's unfortunate, but it was, and I understand why it's so difficult. She ended up selling her practice to another corporate dental practice, dental company that was coming in to the area. And so I worked with her through that transition and it was, it was a tough time for all of us. I mean, it was a stressful oh, time. So like Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving was a little crazy and. Well, it wasn't the family stuff. It was working through all of the paperwork and everything like that. Anything um, related to the practice. I mean, we, we, we get along wonderfully. They were just here for Christmas and you know, that kind of thing. So we definitely have a great relationship. It's just being in the practice. I really tried hard to walk that fine line with her. So, um, and with the employees, but, you know, I think a lot of times employees wanted to blame me as the office manager, and I'm sure any office manager can relate and feel like I wasn't being fair. And it really wasn't anything to do with that. It was, it was truly business. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were in there and you were doing the clinical side, then you were doing the managerial side. What was it that you really developed the passion for? I'm not saying like what tasks, you know, that, but like what, what side of dentistry really did you fall in love with? I would say developing systems, you know, having a 
this is how we do this. This is how we do this protocol. This is how, you know, because they really didn't have that when I came in, which is part of why she wanted me in there. She wanted me in there as, you know, someone who could be focused and really have the practice's best interests in mind and really just develop systems and implement them and hold accountability with the team members and that kind of thing. And there was creating hygiene retention systems and accounts receivable uh, systems and that kind of thing and learning how to adjust my communication skills so that I could speak with patients uh, and help lead them to accepting treatment. So those were the things that I I really tried to take on and learn uh, inside and out and just be very passionate about presenting that information to team members and training and then as well as patients. It's hard to learn something inside and out, though, I think, in today's dentistry. What I mean by that is that when we were back in practice, it was busy, but I don't think it was as crazy busy as it is today. And we really could, like, like if I wanted to learn about coding, I really could sit with a code book and have some time in between patients to do that. Or, you know, it just wasn't as hurried at the front. It felt like to me, so I, I feel and this is kind of a recurring theme when I when I talk to audience members, is that my growth as a manager, I think, was really well-rounded back in the day because we had time to explore this stuff. And I think office managers today have it a lot harder. I mean, they're great, but they have it a lot harder because the time crunch is so big. I mean, what do you see something similar? Oh, absolutely. Dentistry is not the same as it was 30 years ago. My family, I didn't mention this earlier, but my dad had a dental lab in California. We, I grew up in California and he had a dental lab out there. So, um, removable. So I grew up in dentistry and around dentists. You know, I never expected that I would be in dentistry as a career. It just, you know, it just kind of happened accidentally, but you know, so I remember going into those dental practices and how different they were then as to what they have to be now in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, going into those practices, there were just, you know, two or three operatories and only a couple of people. And, you know, if they had somebody no show in the in the schedule, it wasn't a big deal and it was much more relaxed. So you're absolutely right. I completely agree with you. We did have time to learn things. By the time I was working with my stepmom's practice, I don't think that that was, I mean, I definitely did not have time to sit and learn, but that is, I think one of the biggest mistakes um, or challenges maybe is a better way to put it, mm-hmm. that new practice owners have to overcome is they have to learn to outsource mm-hmm. and they have to learn how to hire the right people. Every practice that I get to go into, every one of them can use training in some form or fashion, on, on, whether it's on software. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was say ongoing training that because there's, it's yeah. not a one and done where you send no. it to a class. So I'm and, sorry about that. No, no, that's okay. They, I, I feel like that's always the case is, you know, doctors and as a dentrix trainer, I found this to be the case as well. They'd be like, you know, and sometimes it was expectations that were set up not well, but um, you know, they would, they would say, well, we have an eight hour training and that'll be plenty and that'll get us through the next five years. And it's like, oh my goodness, you have no idea <laughs> what you, what you have at your fingertips that you're already paying for. Yeah. So let's, let's teach these team members. And, and I also struggle sometimes, I think a challenge that I see this in the business area a lot is, well, I do better if I learn it on my own. And the problem with that, um, or the concern that I have, and I often see as a proving that it doesn't work to have that approach is that in one regard, it will take you 
10 times longer to learn something. If you're just clicking around on the computer and trying to figure it out, it will take you way, way longer to learn it that mm -hmm. way. And nine times out of 10, you're learning it wrong. Right. And so you develop a workaround in a program or in a system or a protocol or a verbal skill or whatever that looks like. You develop something on your own and it's not quite what it should be. And so it leads to inefficiencies. And that's where training and hiring the right people and even outsourcing. I mean, Teresa, how many times over the years have I called you or emailed you and said, oh my gosh, what do we do about this coding question? <laughs> Yep. Right. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, try and look and figure it out and, and leaf through all the books and, mm -hmm. you know, go on the websites and that I just call you because yeah. you know, <laughs> well, and, and it, you know, that's what I think is so that's a, then see, that's a good shortcut. So, you know, I, I that's right. a good, I mean, that's honestly, that's a good use of resources, but I, I do see where dentists will bring in a new team member and they'll say, okay, here's your OSHA training, HIPAA training, computer training, and it's all in one week. And the poor person, oh, you know, yeah, they're like, no. they're like crying at the end of the day. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I would be, I would be. Too. They're crying for lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, it's a miracle at some point that these people walk back in the door, you know, so. Exactly. exactly. But, but when I think of other organizations, you know, and I've been lucky enough to work outside of dentistry with some companies as well. And I, I'm sure you have too. When, when you see someone get hired at, an, at a corporation that's, you know, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 200 people more, they have onboarding. I mean, they actually call it onboarding. Yep. And, and I, yep. it's very rare I see that outlined in a solo dental office. And I wish that was, I wish that was more common. I Now the group practices that I've uh, had to work with and, and will go to visit, they have whole days of onboarding. You know, you don't go to work mm -hmm. unless you go to their customer service onboarding, you know, that you don't, the doctors don't touch a patient until they go through their new doctor onboarding. But, but mm -hmm. the solo practitioner seems to think it's, you know, well, they'll just absorb it in between patients. And I, I find mm -hmm. that to be um, unfair. Well, it's unfair to, to the employee. Absolutely. So yeah, I, you see that well, too? Well, it's not setting up for success. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. You're right. You're right. You know, so that's what training is all about and onboarding especially is all about, I mean, if you want to hire somebody and you want them to do well in your practice, you have to give them some guidance. You can't just expect them to absorb in between patients. And boy, I'll tell you, I see that all over the place. I did have, I had one client and he was wonderful who um, he was very methodical and he was very analytical and he developed a training roadmap, what he called a training roadmap. And it was for the ones that he developed were geared towards the business or excuse me, the clinical mm -hmm. team members. And I'm here to tell you it was six or seven pages long. It was divided by weeks and tasks and who was going to be showing this person that those, those tasks and how to do that on the computer and training. And I mean, it was fabulous. And it was about a three month process, oh, great. but it was, you know, and it was weekly let's sit down and what do you need help with? What can I, how can I support you? How are things going? I mean, it was amazing. And he had by far the most success bringing team members on in a small community. He couldn't afford, he, because he was in a small community, he couldn't afford 
to have a lot of turnover. And when you don't set someone up for success and you don't provide that information for them, you're going to have turnover. It's just how it, it's just you know, a that's a That's a good point about the, the being in a small community. I'm, and we're not saying that if you're in a big city, you have, you can afford all the turnover. No. The, the fact is, is that today's yeah, right. talent pool, it's really bad in a small yes. area for sure. But yes. even in a big area, Absolutely. are you hearing that the talent pool is not rich anymore? What a great question. I hear it all over the map. I mean, meaning geographically all over the map, I hear that it's high and that it's low. And in some areas, like I, I mean, I've worked with dentists that in one area it takes them six months to get three applications or three resumes for a dental assistant. But in the same area, an hour away, they, they say, oh yeah, we can, if we put an ad in on Craigslist for a hygienist, we'll have six applications by the end of the wow. day. And so, I mean, it really varies on, I think it varies on the laws of the mm-hmm. state and what requirements they, they have um, specifically for the clinical team. And then it also depends on what position business team members. It's really hard. It's really right. hard. Um, I think I, I, I kind of agree with you on yes, that the, you know, for business team members, finding quality people who can work that relationship well with the patient. That's very difficult to find. Well, good the, the conversations we have to have with patients, you know, not just clinically, but talking about something very personal, which is, Number one, your Absolutely. health, the yeah. health and the money, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have to have these conversations and it's really, I think, silly to put somebody on the front lines to have these very personal conversations with patients. But but you that this is something that you're really good at. So when I, you know, when I need help on this, I call you. Like, how do you get your employee to the point where they are confident in having their conversations with patients? Oh, what a great question. Sure, sure. I think confidence is a huge issue with, but I see it all across the practice and some of it is maturity. If there is a, you know, a young person at the business desk who's never had experience talking in large numbers, that right there can be difficult. That's not to say that I've worked with, you know, of course I've worked with experienced office managers, um, you know, and people at the business area, in the business area of an office that are terrible (laughs) at asking for money because they have their own, they have their own idea of what people can and can't afford. And they are always, almost always putting their own personal thoughts into, you know, their, their treatment planning and talking about gearing towards the, or presenting toward the pocketbook. Mm -hmm. And they make assumptions about people's pocketbooks and what they can and cannot afford and that kind of thing. And that's a really hard thing to overcome. And so for me, when I'm talking with business team members, I have to kind of walk them through some, some steps of, you know, let's start with, do you believe in what the doctor is recommending? Do you believe in what the doctor is presenting? Do you understand what the doctor is presenting? Because a lot of times I'm astounded, Teresa, how many times I go into a practice and the person that's sitting in the business team area and presenting financial arrangements for, you know, multiple crowns has never seen a crown being done. They've never had one and they know what they look like. They don't know anything about it. They just know they're supposed to schedule an hour and a half for the first appointment, 30 minutes for the Mm -hmm. second appointment. And that insurance is going to cover half, 
you know, that's, that's pretty much what they know. And so I, I really focus with them on, okay, so let's help understand what it is a crown is. Why do we need to do a crown? And I bring the doctor, of course, in on that conversation. And I ask the doctor to start holding basically like in services in a practice that say, you know, this, I'm going to teach you, this is what you need to understand about what a crown is and what a root canal is. And, you know, especially some of those larger treatment plans. And when we start talking implants and even more important to understand that so that they believe in the, the reason why there is a fee attached to it. They have to understand what all of the implications of that are. If they don't, then sometimes they're going to feel like the doctor's overcharging. And so, you know, they're, they're not going to present that well. I remember uh, hearing a a front office uh, administrator and she was talking about implants and she kept calling them screws. Yeah. yeah. It was like, come on, really? Like, like, you know, and I, I talked to her afterwards and she said, well, isn't that what they are? And I said, well, you know, has he presented, has he given you any material? Have you talked to the implant rep? And, you know, and I was being, I was curious. I wasn't like, like, what are you doing? I was curious, like, what was your training? And she said, he came back, he started doing this and I'm supposed to talk to patients about it. So she, she really had no idea what an implant was and in what situations to use it in. I mean, she had gathered that it was happening with extractions because there was a space like that. (laughs) That was really Mm -hmm. it. So it's, it's again, and she was, she probably could have talked them, you know, not into it, but, but really given them good feedback about it. Had she known fully Yeah, yeah, what it is. And so, you know, we rectified that, but that, that stuck with me a lot because if you're, if your front office person is calling it a screw, what the heck are they calling it when they go home and talk to their wife or their, you know, husband about it? (laughs) Right. I see the same thing, Teresa, I see the same thing with CAD cam dentistry, which is wonderful, but business team members, you know, the doctor and assistants go to a course and they learn how to do it after the machine's been purchased and they learn how to do it and they come back and they're really excited. But then the business team has no idea what it is. And a lot of times, and they, they need to understand that so that they can be excited about it. The, the CAD cam issue is, is really interesting. I'm glad that you brought up that the conversations aren't really great about it. So can you give us a couple pointers on how to talk to patients about CAD cam in the office? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that, you know, when we're getting ready to go in and, and talk to patients about the CAD CAM is we want to make sure that they understand, make sure that the business team understands exactly how that process looks and what it looks like so that they can support whatever it is that the clinical team has already said to the patient and then helping the patient to understand the benefits. So really focusing on why is it the CAD CAM, the same day dental, the same day crown is better for the patient than the traditional crown. It, of course, depending on the situation, if that's truly the case. So, and then wanting to give them great financial options and making sure that they understand what their financial options are in regards to that. So it comes back to just the way you would present treatment normally. And then if we're scheduling, we want to make sure that we're scheduling enough time. That's one of the big things that I also see is the doctor and the assistant understand that maybe in the past they've been able to do a crown prep and impression and attempt in an hour and a half and they have a good system for that. But now they're going to come back from the class and they're going to need three hours in order to be able to do from start to finish. And the business team is pulling their hair out going, are you kidding? 
I don't need, why we can't afford to do two, you know, three hour appointments. And so they need to understand why they need that time. Can we talk about that for a second? Because yeah, the, the front office person to me is saying three hours, how is that more productive than, you know, doing a crown in one and a half hours and sending sure. it to the lab? So how do, how do I, if I'm a dentist coming back from a course, how do I talk to my office manager about that? Excellent. Understand that when we're, when they're coming back from a course and they want the doctor, or excuse me, they want the business team to schedule a three hour block for that. The reason why is because they're learning a new skill. And they need to go slower. I mean, the prep part, not so much, right? Other than maybe they need to be a little bit more defined in their margins or something like that. But it's the scanning impression that's going to take a little bit longer and the design that's going to take longer. And, you know, so there's parts of it that are going to take longer for the dentist and they're learning a new skill. And so if we try to cram a new skill into a time frame that we used to always schedule, like, let's say we say, okay, well, I can give you two hours. Well, if a doctor is feeling stressed and they're getting anxious because, you know, during the design process or the impression process or whatever, it's only going to compound the problem and make it harder for them to complete the procedure and do it well for the patient Mm -hmm. um, because they're feeling that pressure of, I I have to have so much time or I, I have another patient waiting or something like that. If we allow them the time until they feel like they can shorten that appointment until they're consistently doing it in two and a half hours, and then we can shorten that appointment to two and a half hours. So essentially what it is, is if we give them the time to get good, the speed will come. But if we try and make them go fast, they'll never get good. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And what I love about that is that if you flip that around on how to train any team member, mm-hmm. it makes sense as well. Absolutely. I mean, you don't push them in, you don't rush them. But if you, and if you do, you're, they're going to be trained. I mean, for lack of a better term, they're going to be half-ass trained. Really. Right. Uh, right. So it's absolutely no, that's true. Right. That's great. Well, now, do, what is the pushback regarding insurance with CAD CAM? I mean, you, that's, I, I know you and I talk about this kind of stuff all the time, but mm-hmm. what's the nobody told me that around CAD CAM insurance? For, for the most part, and you can speak to this probably better than I can, for the most part, the, the reimbursement has come back up. It used to be that that was something that was denied. Um, quite often as no matter what, it was considered to be cosmetic. And so it was denied or downgraded significantly. I'm not seeing that as much. I don't know what your thoughts are on that um, as far as downcoding, but I think they're almost always getting benefit for it. But they also need to understand that if in their practice, their protocol is to collect by the time we do the prep, we're collecting, you know, if we're doing half at prep, half at seat, when we collect for the patient, If we're doing this all in one appointment, there is no second appointment. Mm -hmm. So you have to collect everything up front. And so you need good verbal skills and a great relationship with your patients and trust and rapport in order to be able to help them understand how that's going to make it different. So if you want to still split it up into two payments, then we need to get part of that payment beforehand and part of payment at the prep appointment. And then of course they need to make sure that they're indicating on their claim that, you know, when they did the prep, that this was same day dentistry. And and again, I'm sure you can speak much more clearly to that as to what they need to indicate on the claim. Well, yeah, the claim they do need to let them know that it's a, you know, single visit crown. Uh, what many insurance companies would love is if you let them know that you had a, a, a CEREC or an E4, you know, E3D or is E4, E4D, goodness. Uh-huh. Um, 
in their offices and, 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 you know, a lot of times I, I know some deltas will ask you for the serial number because they, wow. they just want to know that you have that. Yeah. So, so if you do have a CAD cam in your office, definitely find out, you know, call, pick up the phone, talk to a provider relations, not the customer service people. If you want to talk to the provider relations department and find out, you know, how to make sure that your account is flagged so that you are, okay sending in without the prep and seat day. Yeah. And, and I do see reimbursement is going up. I, I do see that a lot, but I also know that the very restrictive contracts, it's not, it's really not going up. So, oh, okay. uh, in, in, but again, it's, it's all over the board, right? Like, right. like what works in California is so different than what works in Wisconsin. Yes. Um, so, you know, your mileage may vary and the bottom line is always you need to call and find out. And I hate giving that advice because who wants to spend their time on the phone? But right. to be to be 100% sure, that's really, that's how it's got to be. Because you don't get that level of specificity on the, the breakdowns. You just right. you don't do that, you know. Um, although you and I are fans of outsourcing, if you do outsource to a reputable company, they can get that level because they're the ones calling. Right. Um, so you could do that. You could do it that way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now you, you said something about building that relationship with that patient. And, you know, if you could come up with this, if I could come up with this, we'd be millionaires. Like right. what is your, <laughs> what is your, your magic bullet for building a relationship? What's the one thing that you think really works? One or two things. Oh, I love this question. And I love that you use the word magic bullet. <laughs> I got to tell you hands down, in my opinion, if somebody gives me, asks me that question, magic bullet, what's the magic bullet for case acceptance? Intraoral camera every time. Oh, yeah. And that goes yeah. so far towards building the relationship because you're building trust with the patient. And it's huge. It's just huge. You know, you've got to build the rapport. You've got to build the relationship. I firmly believe, Teresa, and this is my soapbox, so shut me down if you need me to stop talking. <laughs> but I firmly believe that in dentistry for a long time, as a whole, as a whole industry, we've done, we've done ourselves a disservice by focusing on things that are not about what's good for the patient, such as Let's build value for insurance and let's build value. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll, we'll just, you know, let them dictate what the diagnostics are going to be. And we'll say, you know, you don't have to take x-rays today. And, and if they don't ever want to do treatment, then we say, okay, that's fine. Just sign this form and we, we drop it. And we don't talk to them about it again. Or even, even in the past, it was uh, probably in your office as well. It was pretty common that we would do the treatment and say, okay, well, we'll bill you after we get the payment from the insurance company. And so there was oh, never sure. a sense of urgency with the patient of this is a business and this is important and we have to build value. And I know that so many practices, when they, when I first get to start working with them, I hear from them a lot. There's a lot of concern of, well, our patient family just won't be able to do it if they can't, if their insurance covers it and mm-hmm. they won't be able you know, our, our patient family is different. Our demographic is they can't afford it. And I say, I understand. And I know that there are definitely areas. So socioeconomic pockets, I understand that all over the map. Right. I said, but if they can afford, you know, how often does it, do they come in? Some people come in and they tell you all about their vacation to Disneyland. Yeah, and definitely. Yet the, next word, the, the next words out of their mouth are, I can't afford that crown. 
It's a matter of we haven't built the value for how important dentistry is. And a lot of it is, I will say, some of it is that we didn't have the knowledge that we do now. We don't didn't have the science that we do now um, to present to patients. And so we didn't build the value for what we're providing. And that's how why I think we have such a hard time now getting patients to say yes to some of the treatment that we're recommending because in the past, they didn't have to. They didn't feel like they had that need. And we didn't really talk to them about why it was so important. And we did all these different things that really devalued what we were providing. Um, and I've, I've given several, I, I love this lecture topic. Um, you know, when I do a CE course, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it, there's some simple tweaks that hygienists can do and there's simple tweaks that doctors can do. And I could talk for three hours about that. <laughs> so <laughs> well, it truly is. It, I think, you know, this this comes down to, you know, if we want people to start perceiving dentistry differently, then we have to change the conversation. We can't continue to do dentistry in the same way as we did 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago because it's not the same. I, I think even 10 years ago is, is a good uh, throwback number. Here Here's what you and I had to deal with way, way, I don't know, 20 years ago. Let's just say mm-hmm. we're in the business for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um we had people who were probably in their 20s, 30s, and we would say things to them like, well, you tell us how you, you know, what you want to do. Right. You tell us which tooth hurts you the most. Uh, we would say things like, don't worry about it. We'll see you at your next visit. We would we'll say things that. like, it's okay. Yes, we'll watch that. Um, and th- so those people have now grown up and now they're, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they are used to a dentist's who is very laid back about mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. And now, now we're giving them all sorts of education. We're trying to let them know this is so important. But for years in their formative years, they were told, oh, we'll get to it eventually. Right. right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very different mindset now. Now, you know, when you're presenting treatment to somebody who's younger, the, the biggest issue I, I feel is finances when they're younger. This generation coming up, my sons and, and even a little bit older, they know stuff is wrong. They don't know what to do. So they trying to trust you about it. But I think our generation and, and slightly older, we question a lot more, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're not, we don't understand that dentistry is so it's so hard now. Like Mm -hmm. it used to be just pretty easy. I I don't, I don't know. Now, now that we've got all these fancy tools and toys and there's a new image here and Ooh, we can do a 3d model of your tooth here. And, and they used to just come in and, you know, have the spit sucked and that was it. Right. (laughs) We go into practices and we, you know, the clinical team will, I mean, a great example is they say, well, we want to take blood pressures on our patients. And a lot of them refuse to let us take blood pressure. Because they don't wow. understand that there's a there is a connection, mm-hmm. and the office doesn't understand that there. I still have offices that say no, that's not something that we want to implement. Yeah, yeah, I, I do too. It's scary. Yeah, you know, it's just a mindset that we have to get into. We have to understand the connection ourselves, and we have to believe in the connection. And this kind of circles back to the very beginning of our conversation today. You know, we have to understand what it is that we're providing. And we have to believe that it's important and we have to build each other up in our team and we have to stop trying to force things down each other's throats and, and we've got to build value for our schedule, um, you know, and there's just so many things that are hard to manage, but that we 
when you have protocols and systems and workflows in place, you're able to really use those things to build value for the dentistry. You know, one thing that I'm, I'm always teaching clients is, and I know this is a little bit off of the insurance topic, but even in the schedule, if somebody, you know, they call in and they say, I have an appointment today, but you know, it's just a cleaning. There's a really big clue that they have no value built, right? It, you know, it's just a cleaning and I need to reschedule because I have, a, you know, a hair appointment or a work meeting or whatever that looks like. Right. And then exactly. the, the person that's answering the phone says, OK, well, we can get you in tomorrow. Will that work better for you? Well, there's no value bill. But just like, you know, there's the law of um, supply and demand. And if you say to the patient, gosh, that's really bad or I'm really sorry to hear that you won't be able to make it. Is there anything I can do to help you make that appointment? No. Okay. My very first opening to see that particular hygienist is not going to be until September mm-hmm. and then stop talking and then let the patient do the, you know, say, Oh, wow, gosh, September. Yes. She's very popular and you know, <laughs> supply and demand. Even if your appointment, your next appointment is available next week, you put that patient, schedule them out, put them on a list and then call them in a couple of weeks and move them up. But if you train them that they can get right back in, you've built no value. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been trained by my hairdresser. She, oh, you know, yes. if I cancel an appointment, it's, it's two or three weeks. And when you're talking Absolutely. to a middle-aged woman with gray hair, that's, uh, that's <laughs> frightening, right? And a very busy <laughs> travel schedule to boot. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean? And so, you know, when I put her in the calendar, it's a sacred visit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mess with that time period. Absolutely. So, but that's the value she's created. Number one, it's the right. fear I can't get in. But number two, I think she does a great job. And that right. that's the value. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I love that you brought that in. And, and we don't, I don't think we take the time to train our people. I agree. Um, but are the best people who can do it. So, so what I mean by that, there's, there may be two or three people in an office who are phenomenal with handling patients. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so what ends up happening is those people are the ones that end up doing most of the talking. I, I think those people, if they're really good, let's get them to train everybody else and what their secrets are. Uh, Do you see that in your offices? Yeah, absolutely. And if we can do that, then what happens is then everybody's saying the same message and that right there will also build value for the for the practice and for what you have going on in your practice. If everybody's got the same message, patients will start to hear it more and more often and they'll start to believe it. I absolutely agree. That is wonderful what you just said. If if you if everybody has the same message, your patients will hear it. Yes. It, it, it has to be consistent. I, I love that. I absolutely, you should put that and repeat and repeat. There should be an article on that, Andrea. That's an article. I, that sounds like a great <laughs> idea. Well, you know, and speaking of, of articles and stories and all of that, I, I, this brought to mind when you said to, we were talking a long time, gosh, we've talked, you know, at different meetings for so long. Um, you've said to me at some point, you know, we, we talk about our philosophies of consulting, you know, mm-hmm. um, numbers mm-hmm. tell a story. Talk to me about what that means because, and and let's keep in mind that some, some managers and dentists listening here, they're not either, they're too busy to get the numbers. They're not sure what they're looking at. So when I, when you say that to a new wide-eyed dentist or manager, what does that mean to them? To know the numbers, you know, they, 
here's the thing. How many times, Teresa, you and I both know that this happens. Doctor comes out of school. He's super excited. They're fresh. Maybe they've worked in uh, another practice as an associate, but now they're starting their own practice. And they say to us, what's the one thing they say to us? I just want to practice the dentistry. I want to hand all of that other stuff over. I don't want to have to look at reports. I don't want to have to. And that is so scary. That's like one of the scariest things as a consultant and as a trainer. And I'm sure as somebody who's in risk management would agree, that's one of the scariest things that we that we can hear. So you have to know the numbers of your practice to know if you are going to be able to pay the bills, pay your team. Because it's not just you. Guess what? It's not just you, doctor. It's the whole team. and you know, you have to be able to keep the doors open. And if you don't know your numbers inside and out and what's profitable and what's not profitable, what's working, what's not working, then you could eventually end up, unfortunately, having to close your doors. And then you have, how are you caring for patients then? You know, how are you caring for your team members then? You can't. And so having, you know, understanding what KPRs are, key performance indicators or benchmarks, in the, in the industry, what things, what, what would indicate a healthy accounts receivable? What would indicate a healthy production goal? What would indicate a healthy hygiene retention? Knowing what that is in the industry and where your practice sits in comparison tells you where you need to go. That's your roadmap. It tells you what you need to, as far as training, it tells you what you need. I mean, if we want to talk about Look, if we, you know, maybe they're on every PPO on the planet and they really want to start taking themselves off they're they've built up a practice and they feel like, you know, I, I really feel like I want to be more profitable and I don't want to do the 50% write off that I have to do right now for all of the mm-hmm. plans. And so they have to have a plan of how to get off of some of those, those uh, insurance plans. And the only way they're going to know how to do that is to, to know those numbers. And so... They have to know, you know, what percentage of their patient population and they have to know what that write-off is for that particular company. And, you know, they need to really spend some time analyzing what insurance companies are more profitable and which ones are less profitable. And that gives them an idea of how they can start to perhaps wean themselves off of some of those plans if that's what they want to do. And and the numbers, when you start looking at those they don't lie. That's no. the other, that's the other consulting right. tip, right? Like we always say numbers tell a story, but numbers also don't lie. And that's right. You know, your office manager can tell me, or you could tell me that you're at 98% collection, but what about all those adjustments? You know, right. Right. <laughs> uh, so exactly. yeah, numbers story. I love that. And, and numbers don't lie. And right. when, when you, cause you've, you've helped a couple offices out with this. I mean, what do you yeah. see as the biggest biggest, nobody told me that part of starting to wean yourself off of insurance. Okay. So the first thing, one thing I tell them is right away, they need to change their conversation with their patients. So they need to start talking differently to their patients, regardless of understanding or knowing or deciding, even if they want to get off, they've got to start building value for what they're providing and change that conversation with patients instead of building value for the insurance or even bringing up insurance all the time. Um, so they, that's where they need to start. That's number one. And they can start that today that there's no, okay, we have to get everything in place. They can change that today. Mm -hmm. Then they need to do their research and they need to understand 
where all of the uh, money is in the insurance and where the write-offs are and what the, you know, get those numbers put together and what is the patient population. And sometimes that takes, I mean, I worked with one practice where they were on a number of plans and she actually, this beautiful new dentist had um, purchased a capitation practice. And so we don't see a ton of that anymore for good reason. And she bought this capitation practice and they had to They had about six months worth of cleanup in their system before they could even begin to get those numbers. And so that's where we started was we got, you know, we worked on getting things cleaned up and getting the insurance engine working correctly in their program so that they could then pull reports and get those actual numbers. And then once you have a plan, then they were able to say, you know, hey, we realize there's about six plans that we want to drop. Well, then we worked on, okay, now how do we do that? If they dropped all six plans, she would have had to shut her doors because Mm -hmm. everybody would have left. Whereas if they started with building value at the very beginning, at that very beginning of that six months, which they did, then by the time they were ready to start talking to patients about dropping some of those plans, they were already well on their way of training and teaching their patient family that the insurance plans were not good for them, for the patient, because they weren't. Patients were actually paying a lot more out of pocket than they would with even going to a PPO in that particular practice. So we developed a series of letters and emails. We had specific talking points written out for those particular plans the patients on those plans, and they determined they had about a five-year plan on how to drop these these six plans, and they did two a year, and um, they started with the smallest ones. We never, ever want a practice to start with the biggest one, even though that might be the one that's hurting you the most. I would always recommend that you start with the small ones, A, because you'll gain confidence. That's a huge one, because you'll learn that not every patient's going to leave just because you changed insurance company. Or your, your participation. And if you've started by building values, hopefully patients wouldn't dream of leaving because they would never dream of going to a different dentist because you've built so much value with that. So if you start with that, then you start working towards dropping. You really have a much better chance of retaining your patient family. And one thing that's really important, I think a lot of offices forget, you know, they, first of all, they assume that they need to be on PPO participation in order to get new patients, which is absolutely not true. And yes, they'll be on a list, but they have to remember if the patients are coming from an insurance company, they are already insurance driven, period. And maybe not 100% because, you know, we're dealing with people. But if the patients are coming from an insurance, they get the name of the practice from an insurance company, they are already geared towards going towards whatever insurance will cover and only what insurance will cover. Whereas if they're hearing, if their marketing dollars are better spent getting patient referrals, they are hearing, they're getting patients who care more about their mouth and less about the insurance. Does that, does that ring true to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there is a real, I think it's a real ego hit that some some people, some offices take when they realize the patient is going to leave the office. I mean, I, I think more people stay than they think. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. when you have those conversations, you know, there's always that human factor. The patient doesn't want to upset you. The patient doesn't want to, you know, disappoint you. 
Um, and unfortunately, sometimes they just don't come back. And that's kind of mm-hmm. our site. We lose them silently. You know, what I wanted to, to say about the leaving uh, a practice is we typically find that if they're going to come back, this is my experience. And, and this is what I say in classes is it's usually between one and a half to two and a half hygiene cycles for them to come back. Because oh, that's great. Well, because they'll go, yeah. they'll go to great. a new dentist and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll figure, okay, well, it's not as great as Dr. Greer was, but you know, it's not bad and it's cheaper. Then the next time they go in, they're like, yeah, it's really not the same. This girl's hurting me or this guy's not great. And, and they all new people. Yeah. They start to, yeah, it's a brand new staff. You know, they're just, their customer service isn't up to, to par. And so they start to think, you know, rethink it. And then that's when they, they decide, Hey, I, you know, I need to go back. So then the, the next one, they, they eventually will come back now somewhere in between there, if they end up having to have work done, then that can, that can accelerate because they, they won't like the treatment. It'll be different. You know, people are mm-hmm. creatures of habit. They really like yep. what they're used to and going to a dentist in the first place is traumatic for a lot of people. So the fact that they got used to one dentist is huge. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and having to get up to speed on an, on another whole office. And now, now here's what I see happening because this was really good and solid advice maybe five years ago because we could count on heavy PPO offices not having good customer service, right? Right. But today, a lot of good, a lot of offices that are heavy PPO participation do have good customer service. So True. this is an this is another, you know, kick in the butt that if you're not taking a look at that, that's a that's a big that's a big change you have to make and sometimes it's an outside view like you that would mm-hmm. come in and say, you know, you may think that you're really connecting with your patients, but I don't see the engagement I normally see. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Well, and and as far as planning it out, I think that's brilliant, you know, planning it out three, four, five years, because it's it's not, it's a slow untangling. It really is. It's yeah. a slow untangling. And I, you know, I, that's a nobody told me that, that I say to, to people all the time is, yes, it, it was very quick to sign the contracts, but it is really long to get out of the relationships with your patients. So that's that's tough. Now, when, when you're talking to a new practice owner, what you were talking about that, that owner that purchased the practice, that's capitation, right? Mm -hmm. Did did she or he or she know that it It was was capitation? Mm -hmm. It was a woman. Oh yes. She actually was there. What was very interesting was kind of a bait and switch. She was an associate in the practice and the doctor really wanted her to purchase. And he signed up for all these capitation plans back in the, like 80s, I think. And so he was getting paid, Teresa, like $10, $12 a patient, you know, and getting that monthly payment every time. Well, what they didn't, or I think it was a bait and switch. I think he knew very well, but when she purchased the practice, all those companies made her re-sign contracts and they gave her the going rate, which was like $3 a patient. Oh, for crying out loud. So she just, she lost her shirt within weeks of purchasing the practice. It was busy and, but she just, she, it just really tanked. So she had immediately, she was starting, I mean, like almost immediately after she purchased the practice, she started talking to patients about, you know, this is what this looks like. And, And really the patients were paying a lot more out of pocket than if they had just chosen the PPO uh, version that their employers were offering. That that was where her conversation went. Was to get she was just she was excited when patients chose a PPO. So over the DMO, 
And so isn't that funny? Um, isn't that yeah, funny? You don't, you don't hear dark. that. Yeah, you don't hear no. that very often at all. No, no. and, and um, the patients were fine. The patients were ecstatic. And that's something that I think, here's another thing. You know, for a long time, I would tell patients, or excuse me, clients and business team managers, you know, when you're talking about insurance, always focus on if, you know, this is a plan through their employer, you've got to tell them, you know, instead of answering the question of does my insurance cover that, part of, you know, instead of just answering it outright, with dollars, what you need to do is start educating your patients that it's based on what the employer paid for, right? Mm -hmm. But I also tell them now, I really emphasize to the business team members, you've got to be telling patients that they're paying, they're making choices too. If they're being given three options, which one do they almost always choose? They choose the cheapest one, mm -hmm. right? And so they're making choices and the cheapest one is cheaper than the best one for a reason, it's got less coverage. Right. So there's no problem. In my mind, it is absolutely imperative that we tell patients, it depends on what you and your employer have chosen to pay for. That's what kind of coverage you have. And that's, uh, yeah, and that's, a, that's an education piece because, you know, that's totally different than, <laughs> than, than how they, they think about it. They think, okay, well, this comes mm -hmm. out of my paycheck and so I'm owed all this dental coverage and, and that's mm -hmm. simply not it. Well, so as a new practice owner, let's go back to this this new practice um, owner sure. that you you brought up because I, I I have a soft spot in my heart for for new practice owners because Me too. well I because they're like you know they're so they're wide eyed they're bushy tailed and, they're and yeah yeah they're innocent <laughs> they're they no training business training no training except for the networks that they have which is. I think this generation of dentists coming up and owning, opening their practices, they have a lot more resources available to them because of the, the social networks, you know, um, the Facebook groups, Ignite DDS mm -hmm. is out there, you know, ADA mm -hmm. is really strong with, with ASDA and, but it's all learning on the fly, which is the worst way to learn it. Right. <laughs> so when you right. are working with a new new practice owner, what are you seeing that is their big step, you know, stumbling block? What do you see? Going back to you a little bit earlier in our conversation, they have to they have to treat it like a business. A lot of them don't. They just want to come in and do the dentistry, mm -hmm. and they have to understand that if they're a practice owner, they have to treat it like a business. And while I, I totally agree with you, I think that the generation of dentists that are coming out now, um, out of schools now, they are, I think, more business savvy in that regard. But I still see a lot of them that have that same attitude of, I just want to do the dentistry. And I don't, I don't necessarily need to know how to do all of the A, Bs, and Cs of knowing those numbers. And they oftentimes will sacrifice getting help, which I understand financially. Sometimes that can be difficult, but they have to remember what the return on investment is mm -hmm. and they have to account for that and whatever loans they take. And they need to make sure that they have, that they're, they get the right people on their bus. Um, as far as their practice goes, not necessarily, I'm not talking about employees, although that's very important, but I'm talking about, you know, hiring the right financial advisor and the right accountant and, you know, getting the right information and getting it faster than if they tried to figure it all out on their own. Just like you said, you know, making a post on a Facebook group and asking a question, you're going to get a hundred different answers and then you've got to slog through it and then you've got to figure out, okay, now how do I, I like that answer. How do I make that happen? You know, whereas, you know, so basically what they're doing is they're reinventing the wheel and we all know that that's the least efficient way to do it. 
um, to do anything is to reinvent the wheel. And so, you know, getting them to understand it's a business and really treat it like it's a business and set it up like a business, getting the right people on their bus in as far as their support. I love working with new offices and new doctors that when it, when a new doctor that within the first six months or a year of opening his doors, whether it be that he purchased as an associate from an associate chip to a partnership or, or ownership, um, or just open their doors. When they hire somebody like myself as a consultant to come in and help them set things up, their return on investment is huge. And they get that back in spades in months as adverse to years of trying to figure it out on their own. And so Hire somebody that tells you, helps you figure it out. Now, you might decide down the road that you want to do it a little bit differently and maybe take a different path, and that's okay. But you've got to get up and running and get profitable quickly. And that's where someone like a consultant or a trainer, getting your, your training done um, with the softwares and that kind of thing can really, really be beneficial. And then I would say they have oftentimes the, one of the big obstacles is bringing in specialists such as, you know, coding, co coding experts like yourself to train team members, software training, you know, even just outsourcing some of the stuff that they need to outsource. It's so much more efficient financially, as well as, I mean, just all around financially, as well as what you will, uh, what time you free up for your team members, if you can delegate and outsource. Okay. And so those are the, probably some of the biggest tips I can give uh, to a new doctor. You've got to let go of some of the control. That And that's tough. I mean, even for managers, that's really tough. Well, and a lot Absolutely. of the a lot of the banks nowadays are building in consulting mm -hmm. amounts into their loans. So, you know, new doctor or or established doctor doing a new build, don't be afraid to see if that is something that's available in your loan, uh, because it, it it makes it makes a huge difference when you have somebody telling you you know, what to do and how to do it best. I mean, imagine trying to do a root canal the very first time without anyone telling you what to do. I mean, that's your, right. not, it's not much different. And your point of cash flow. I mean, you, you need to be making money fast and quickly. Right. And that's, right. that's really the name of the game. Now, it is. sometimes you have interruptions in your, in your office. Sometimes you have interruptions in life. And, and one of the things you and I have talked about before, and, and we talked about coming on this podcast months and months and months ago. And, and mm -hmm. the story I really wanted you to share, you went through a very heroic, brave battle with, no. yes, it was with breast cancer. You, um, mm -hmm. you beat it. You mm -hmm. were very yeah. open about it. Yes, absolutely. You were very open about it on Facebook. You shared, you know, pictures, you shared your story. We were all rooting mm -hmm. for you. Um, yes. and, and a lot of people can, you know, they can certainly reach out to you if, if they'd like to talk to you about that. Absolutely. I, I, I wanted to know Ephraim and nobody told me that point of view, the, the breast cancer was such an interruption in your life. I mean, it took over your life. It interrupted your life. You had to deal with your personal life kind of coming to a grinding halt. And then your professional life kind of went, came to a halt. How, how do you handle that? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, you, you know, it, first of all, I'm, I'm somewhat, I consider myself a little bit of an oversharer. I, I would tell people I'm an oversharer. So when you say that I put things on Facebook, you're not kidding. <laughs> Um, and you know, I got to tell you, I did that from a very selfish standpoint, um, because it was not about, I want everybody to feel sorry for me, but I cannot tell you the strength that I got 
from everybody's encouragement and well wishes and prayers and, you know, everything, all of the encouragement that I got, I did that because I needed it. Mm -hmm. I put, that's why I put it out there because I needed that strength from you. And it's, it got me through. There is no doubt about it. I, it was, I was very blessed. I was, it was found very early and my treatment was pretty textbook, but it was, you know, a really hard year. Now I will say professionally, you know, I felt there was a big part of me that uh, was, um, you know, I kind of had to go through some anger and some sadness because I felt like everything had to be put on hold. And that was very hard because, you know, I've been for 20 years, I've been driven and I've been, I've been, I've known I was going places. I've known for 20 years that this is where I was going to, where I was going to be. And I was now I was here and then I had to put everything on hold. Mm. And that was really tough. And a friend of mine and I were having coffee and she said, she was actually a friend from a, my Toastmasters group that I belong to. And she said, she she's kind of stopped me. I was expressing this, this concern. I was emotional because I was always emotional at the time. She said, no, you're, you're not on hold. Your life is not on hold. Your professional life is not on hold. You're just gaining new insight. You're learning. You're gaining experience that you'll be able to bring to your professional life. And I cannot tell you the relief that I felt at that, when she said that I was just kind of blown away. Mm -hmm. And, um, it really, it hit home for me that, uh, I, I really was gaining experience and yes, I, I couldn't work the way I needed to. And I couldn't travel. I was not allowed to travel, um, which meant that I couldn't travel to clients and I couldn't speak and, you know, do those things. And I didn't have the energy either, but I really was, just gaining experience. And, um, it was a blessing. It really was truly a blessing, um, to have her point that out to me because then it kind of changed my perspective on how I was, you know, what I was thinking about all the time, mm -hmm. instead of being upset and bitter and angry of, oh, I can't be out there. I can't be out there. Instead, I was, what am I learning from this? What am I learning from this? And that's always been kind of a motto. I just, I just kind of lost sight of it. Right. During that, which is understandable, anytime somebody goes through a hard, hard time like that. Sure. But yeah, it was it was intense. What a great, I mean, what a really good friend to to give you that insight. Oh, but, you know, it, yes, it, it it was very. I thought it was great that you were sharing it because I mean, I could see just all the love and and support you were getting. Yes. And for crying out loud, I have friends that have gone through, you know, you know, flu and and you know having a, a sore foot or something and they put it on Facebook and they get all sorts of requests, sure. but, but you were like, you, I could see it made a difference because every time you made a post, uh, you know, thanking us, you could just see the the energy in your face. Yeah. And, and now talking to you, you know, when I saw you in Atlanta, you really are like full of energy. You really, you've, yeah. you're, you're doing great now. So, so what, no, what I, would am. You, I am doing great. What would you say to somebody who has received devastating news like that what what's your first impulse when you when you hear that from somebody so i do hear that often i i belong to you know austin here has an absolutely amazing resource it's called the breast cancer resource center and they're tremendous absolutely tremendous and they have throughout the city they have three support 
meetings or th- uh, their luncheons usually in different, there's three different areas. And I go to one once a month in my down by where I live in the South part of Austin. And, you know, there's new, newly diagnosed women that come to these luncheons every month. And every month, you know, they sit there and they, they're emotional. Sometimes, sometimes they've processed it. They've been dealing with it for a couple of weeks. Sometimes they've already started treatment. You know, sometimes they haven't, sometimes they just got the diagnosis like a week before, you know, so it's all over the map as far as that goes. But they, they're like, is it wrong to feel this way? Is it, I don't know what to do. And, you know, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I try really hard to tell them and on the Facebook group, I, I post this a lot is, You have to give yourself the grace to feel what you need to feel. You need to, you know, people are going to come out of the woodwork and tell you what you should do, what you should or shouldn't eat, how you can cure cancer without having to go through chemo and, you know, doing all of these things. And I, and I tell them, you have to do what's right for you. And what's right for you may not be what's right for me. And what's right for you, Teresa, Mm -hmm. and what's right for for Susie and for Jane, you know, everybody is going to have their own way of processing and dealing and choices to make um, in their in their treatment and in how they heal. Um, Some women, if they don't, if they're not working 100 miles an hour, then they're going to feel lost and they won't heal as well. Where there were some like myself, I had to give myself a lot of grace. I did work, but I wasn't able to. I had a lot of um, a phenomenon called chemo brain where you are very forgetful and it's almost like your head's in a bubble. Oh, wow. Um, And um, you can't process, uh, you can't think straight, you forget a lot, that kind of thing. And so you have to give yourself the grace to just let it, let it be and let it, you know, just let this happen, do what you can, but give yourself the grace to, to take the time that you need and understand that you need to advocate for yourself. If you feel strongly that a choice in treatment or not doing a a certain treatment is the right choice for you, you need to advocate for yourself. And that means maybe that you need to find a different doctor. Um, And we say this all the time in our group is, you know, somebody will say, well, my doctor wants to do this, but I'm not really good. And we say, I'm not really good with that. And they say, and we tell them, get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. Find a doctor who will tell you either the same thing and reinforce and answer the questions or find somebody who gives you the the treatment options that you want. Because there's a lot of different ways to go about treating the different kinds of breast cancer. And so, um, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's different. And I learned that there is no one right way to treat breast cancer. (laughs) And, you know, everybody's choice for surgery or not surgery is going to be totally different and it's okay. And that was something that was kind of new for me. Um, I thought, you know, I kind of always knew that if I got breast cancer, I was going to do a double mastectomy. It was just never really a question in my mind, you know, whereas some people would want to do everything they could to save um, any healthy tissue. Um, and that's fine. It's all okay. You know, whereas before I'd be like, I don't understand why a woman would not choose to get a double mastectomy because that's not the right choice for her. That's right. Right. And it's okay. It's okay. And, and so that was my biggest lesson and something that I try and, I try and tell the, you know, ladies that come into this group, you, you need to have grace for sure to, to make your choices and do what you need to do to heal. And the, so. the awareness piece was huge for me because um, I, I, when you were talking about it, you know, I immediately next shower, I did a, a self-exam 
I, I mean, mm-hmm, it was just it was on my mind. And, and so now I, you know, I definitely am now more regular and, and I would have to say mm-hmm. it really is because I watched everything that you went through. So you've made a difference mm-hmm. there. So to any girls, Good. any ladies who are listening right now, you know, go, you know, next time you take a shower, soap up and, and I guess really feel the boobies, right? Just make, do yes. the exam. Yep. And- feel up those girls, feel them. And, you know, and I will say though, Teresa, that mine was found on a mammogram, a screening mammogram. And even after knowing that it, where it was exactly, nobody could feel it. Mm-hmm. So mammograms are huge. You've got to do your regular mammograms. And, you know, something else that, that kind of is a, and, and I don't, I don't know if this really is, is applicable to the conversation, but something that was kind of a, kind of an aha moment for me is I am very, um, I'm a positive person. I've always been kind of a positive person, a glass half full rather than a glass half empty type of person. And I, I tend to always look for silver linings and, you know, instead of asking why me, my question, when something bad happens, my question is most often, what am I supposed to be learning from this? Or how can I do something different? That's typically how I've always been. And one thing that's very interesting to me is that that's not how everybody is built. And I thought everybody was built that way. And so, for instance, for me, people would talk about, you know, well, you know, silver lining, at least you're going to get new girls. You know, at least they caught it early, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, and <laughs> people would say these things to me and it was fine because okay. I agreed. <laughs> I was like, I would, that was like, you, you saw my posts and you saw, I mean, I was excited to get, I call them PNGs, perky new girls. I was really excited about it and it was just, it was my thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I flaunted the bald and I wore a lot of pink and, you know, I mean, I just, cause I like pink, right? So there was a lot of silver lining in it for me, but one thing I learned, and this is really important for everybody to hear, Mm -hmm. I think, is not everybody feels like there are silver linings when you're going through cancer treatment. So don't tell people, say things to them <laughs> yeah, to try and I, cheer I them that. up, such as, well, at least you're going to get new girls. <laughs> at least you're going to lose weight because you're on chemo, which is not always true. I gained, um, and about 50% of people do, they say, but Mm-mm. you know, people would say, oh, well, at least you're going to lose weight because you're going to be on chemo. That's not a silver lining. And so, um, good advice. I, I just caution people to be very careful when they say that and, uh, you know, as they approach. And the best thing that you can say to somebody who's newly diagnosed is that's terrible. What can I do for you? How can I be there for you? What can I, how can I help? So simple. So very simple. simple. And, and yeah, I, I like that a lot. We, uh, we have covered an awful lot, Andrea, yes. and I so <laughs> appreciate you, you know, being very open and very sharing and tell Absolutely. people how how they can find you. And of course, I'll make sure that it's in the show notes, but how can they find you? My website is onpoint.consulting. So www.onpoint.consulting. Which you fooled me the first time that I sent an email to you because it said onpointconsulting.com and that's not your email. So I'm glad that you're saying it's onpoint.consulting. Did I I tell you that, .com? No, no, I just assumed it. Oh, Right. No, I get it. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yes. No, it's it's a very, um, apparently they've used all the dot coms. Wow. And so there are fewer of those available. So now they've opened up that, 
you know, it's like do life magazine. It's D E W dot life. Mm -hmm. That's her website. And, um, so anyway, yes, dot, uh, dot consulting. Okay. And my phone number, I don't know if that's, um, yeah. something that you would like for me to give out. Um, but my phone number is nine, seven, zero, two, one, eight, two, two, zero, nine. And people can certainly reach out to me that way, or they can email me at Andrea at on point dot consulting. Fantastic. Well, I, and I will also make sure that this information is in the show notes. So feel Wonderful. free to reach out to Andrea about any of the systems, about any of the uh, protocols that she talked about. And, you know, if you have any questions on breast cancer, I know she's very giving in that, that regard. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so any, any last thoughts there? I don't think so, Teresa. I'm very excited to uh, continue to work with you, and I love what you're doing oh, um, you. out in out in uh, our industry. We just so need it. We need somebody, you know, people out there helping us uh, and guiding us through the gosh that big mess of their out there called insurance and helping us to navigate that. Well, it's funny so. because uh, I was telling somebody that uh, I'm I'm I feel like I'm a Sherpa. And, you know, usually a Sherpa is that, that scrungy, gruffy Himalayan dude that's, you know, helping you go right. up the side of the mountain with all sorts of supplies and stuff. But I, I feel like that's, that's where we are now. I, I really do feel like I need to help guide as far as insurance goes. And, and I don't know very much more, I, you know, I'm kind of out of it as far as the systems go. So they need people like you and other consultants mm -hmm. to help out with that. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. So everybody who has been uh, listening for this, this episode, we really appreciate your uh, support and your patronage. And if you really like what you're hearing, feel free to share it with your friends and make sure you hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And until the next episode, uh, go ahead and, and take this information and hopefully you'll never be in a situation where you can say, nobody told me that. Hopefully you'll never have to say that about any of these topics. Subscribe to this podcast so you'll get our next candid discussion. Visit Teresa's website, odysseymgmt.com. That's odysseymgmt.com for more information on Teresa's courses, books, and speaking schedule. Subscribe to her newsletter while you're there. Don't say we didn't tell you that.